Welcome to the Thunderstock Show. My goal is simple, discuss topics that matter to your life, liberty, and pursuit of property. My hope is that these brainstorms provide you value. Hey everyone, today's episode is with Josh Eberly. We'll be talking about investing, private equity, real estate, stocks, crypto, and his philosophy on doing business and investing. If this is a topic that interests you, please share the show. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Josh Eberly. This is the second podcast I'll be doing with Josh, the first on the Thunderstock show. A little bit about Josh. He is a father, also a girl dad like myself, uh, avid investor, business owner, digital marketer, uh, local native to the Lancaster, Lebanon area, and all around cool guy. Josh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for having me back. I know the last, I enjoyed the last podcast we had more so like on the background of just philosophy of why I do what I do and you know what I currently did in kind of my career but I I'm sure we're gonna have some exciting topics today I know we're just chatting about those and uh, excited to jump in yeah so off air we were talking about the scandals in the crypto area Josh I know you're a crypto connoisseur you're an avid investor what would you say your top level take is on what's going on and how do you how do you feel about it yeah, so I kind of have it's it's been so interesting in the crypto space because it's unlike really any other investment you can make. I mean, you know, I, I kind of take it like akin to like going to the casino sometimes. Um, so, you know, when you're on a roll, you're on a roll, you keep your money rolling and then you have bad days, you have bad days, man. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, I have a big strategy. I followed even Belina. He's a tokenmetrics.com, a really great platform over there. But Basically, you know, my philosophy since the beginning has been this, you know, you're going to pick, you know, you, if you pick 10 projects, you know, two or three are going to fail inevitably. So in the crypto space, you really have to, to kind of hedge your bets on really solid projects, people. I know a lot of people were in the FTX with Sam Friedman and, you know, those can fail. You know, it's a pretty unregulated space still. And just like it's kind of like going out and being a venture capitalist right with a small business like you're basically batting on individuals projects ideas that don't necessarily have proof of concept or even you know that they work in the real world um so i know russ you have a big background in, in being a private like a venture firm and investing in businesses so kind of akin to that just you don't always have as much research as you guys would have when you're making your investments um, so yeah, I mean, my strategy has always been like, you know, invest on the project, invest on the utility case, uh, strong fundamentals. And if you pick 10, you know, three of them are going to literally, you're going to lose all your money. So you better make money on the rest. That's it. That's pretty much it. One of the investment principles to stand behind, I know it's commonly accepted is you don't necessarily invest in the company as much as you invest in the founder in some cases. So having available inf information about where is this coin or this uh, exchange or this whatever crypto related service, what have you is coming from, it would be an integral factor if I were to start going into that investment space. So one of the articles that I saw come out, I, I forget where it came from, but it was effectively recovering deleted Tumblr pages from FTX's uh, ex-girlfriend. And it was some pretty spicy stuff. Um, if I was an investor and I read that, I would probably likely, it would, it would change my opinions on it. Um, and I know that took a dip pretty hard. Um, there was scandal around it. But other 
there's been other celebrity figures and even in the blockchain environment of um you know doing uh, uh, all sorts of things right so floyd mayweather was involved in these pump and dump schemes and creating coins and it's kind of like okay well what do they know about technology if the answer is nothing yeah. then okay you're just a meme like you're a shit coin so uh, yeah, it wasn't like kardashians like in some kind of scandal with kardashians yeah. and, or cardi b or one of those yeah it, yeah so basically yeah it comes back to investing in the founder or the coin right the project and uh you know i like a lot of coins that have like proven utility and, and you think about like the internet right like back in the day so when we were kids the internet was the the big you know frontier like web you know web 1.0 mm-hmm. web 2.0 right and so you know i always can like you know if you think now like if you look back and go oh if i just bought apple stock or i bought amazon stock right I'd be so rich now. Like, well, you're picking the winners now. Like, you know, we hindsight 2020, like we can look back and say, oh, we should have invested these companies. Well, how many mm-hmm. other, you know, in digital online ventures were there that you just never heard about that people put money into that never succeeded? Um, so for really in the crypto space, you know, do your research and, you know, really invest wisely. But the the market, and I was just telling Russ, it's like the fact that like this founder of this major exchange can like basically go bankrupt. And the major coins lose like, you know, five to ten percent of value is really nothing in the crypto space. When you look at, you know, you have <laughs> little run-ups of like a hundred X and then it goes down 90% in like the next month. It's insane. So um in- anyways, I don't want to spend all the time on crypto, but you know, I hope you learned a little bit there on the in our little conversation. So like me, you're not all in on crypto. You diversify your investments. You have ownership and interest in business and growing business, private equity, and you also are heavily involved in real estate. Um, what has changed in the last year for how you've been looking at markets and investing and how have you sort of navigated the waters of what's looking like a bear market recession? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, waking up and looking at the S&P and being like, oh, crap, you know, I just lost a ton of money, right? Um, so for me, it's really been thinking about where I'm putting my money and thinking about economic policy and how that affects your money, right? So a long time, you know, I didn't really understand this when I was younger. They don't teach you this in school. But anytime you have a, a massive run-up of, like, government printing money, right, like we just had during... Uh, COVID, everyone's riding that high of, of this printed money for, you know, six to 12 months afterwards. And then things actually get tough. Like if you look at history, like whenever somebody prints money, prices inevitably will go up, we'll have inflation and things will get tough. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a Republican or a Democrat, whoever's in power, like when it's the fundamental principle. This is what's going to happen. Um, so for me, it's looking at that and going, all right, where can I put my money into more of a maybe safer return investment vehicle or investment vehicle that is collateralized by something that is not just you know a stock market so if i'm investing my 401k or my solo 401k whatever maybe i'm picking out private uh loans or mortgages collateralized by automobiles right automobiles that are very high high you know price point right now so you know more value for what for what you paid for them probably years ago same way with real estate. I mean, you could do private money loans there and get a very competitive percentage versus like, you know, hey, I'm going to put this in the S&P. It's supposed to go up. Historically, it goes up. But I could also wake up tomorrow and lose 25% of my value. Um, so for me, it's really been diversifying. I also look at 
where I'm diversifying in, right? So from a business perspective, if I have a very strong presence in the B2C space, right? Maybe I want to invest my money in a B2B business, right? Because, you know, you're serving a different customer at the end of the day, um, serving a different kind of business entity. So if we do go through a recession and you're in a, and you're a B2C, you know, consumer good, right? I have some consumer goods that they're not necessity, right? Like at the end of the day, recession mm -hmm. is people want, you know, food, shelter, water, clothing, you know, those are the things they're going to spend their money on. So I know I have a lot of eggs in that basket. So I'm, you know, looking to invest in some boring industries, maybe things that, you know, provide food services or healthcare services or the companies that do B2B in that space. That's where I'd park my money because even if there is a recession, you get, you know, kind of some security blanket knowing that people are still going to need those services. No, I, I totally am with you on that outlook as far as what businesses to choose, go boring, go necessity, eliminate anything that could be deemed as uh, excess um, or, or nice to have versus need to have. One of the, uh, this is going to sound at first as a tangent, but I promise it's not. There's a children's book author named Brett Pike that I've I've liked and followed and I got all of his children's books because now I do story time, right? So uh, your children, I believe, are older than infancy. So they probably would understand these books a lot better than my four-month-old who just kind of sits there and falls asleep and drools. But hopefully someday it sticks. So the lesson in in Brett Pike's um, books, he tries to do a little bit of rhyming with some nice illustrations and touch on subjects like inflation and uh, free speech and censorship. And one of the ones that was very interesting, I believe it's called the peanut trap, or um, there was a, there were basically the main character of his books are bears, right? So all good mm -hmm. bears tell the truth. Uh, that was about like censorship. But the story that I read yesterday, it re relates to this topic of conversation because it like, it's finally a bear market. The main characters being bears. Um, and up until that point, when everything was going great, all the other animals in this village were buying, you know, peacocks were buying new feathers and pigs were buying all the food they could possibly get and, you know, always going out to eat and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the bears were just sort of living within their means and living boring existences and sort of following the Dave Ramsey school of thought for money and having no debt and being lean and mean. So when the... I forget what animal was the banker, what who the snake or the pig, whatever. Started calling the loans and seizing assets. The bear's like, You I don't owe you anything. You can't seize what I don't owe. And everyone, every other animal in the kingdom was was really struggling with foreclosure. And the bears were kind of like, Life as usual. Oh, I have I have a little bit of excess. I can buy that. I can buy that. I can buy that. So sort of right. scooping up the deals. Um, are you finding that in real estate right now? Are you seeing an increase in foreclosures? I know that you do, you have a wholesaling business and investment mm -hmm. firm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, we, we strategically the last couple of months here really like I've tried to get a lot more cash heavy, like liquid cash heavy, um, in my accounts. I just did a deal the other day where like, you know, we came in, seller needed to move quick and I was able to kind of fund that in self bank that, that deal. Mm -hmm. Um, so me and my partner have really been focusing in the last, you know, kind of six months here to get really cash heavy on reserves. Um, because we do believe like, you know, if there was this big downturn, we haven't seen it yet in central PA. I think the number of houses on the market has been up 2%. Um, That's it. And yeah, I saw a stat okay. the other day I and mean, it's yeah. really not moved a lot, but if you look at like 
the southwest, the southeast of the country. Florida's up like sixty percent houses on market. Um, I mean Austin, I was just there. Texas, hundred percent up houses on market. You know Salt Lake City, Phoenix. So a lot of these hedge funds, what's happening? It's kind of a little insight is during COVID and right after that, these hedge funds were buying up a lot of these single family houses in what you would call the Sun Belt, right? The areas of expansion of the country. Well, about two months ago with the interest rates going up, they stopped buying. And now they're kind of sitting on these, you know, a lot of times vacant single family houses that they were just banking on appreciation and they're trying to put the renters in and things like that. And they're starting to sell off, right? And you're starting to see people actually getting foreclosed on now, right? Because they're getting behind on payments and banks are going after them. So I think you're going to see it in different parts of the country portray um we haven't seen it in in central pa yet you know we still got stuff going for over list uh within you know a couple of days of, of listing it on our flips but being prepared for when it does happen i think is more important than just like you know reaping the advantage now so mm -hmm. you know we're we're trying to get very cash dependent heavy in the next couple of months here so that next year when you know if it does happen if this is met this pound downturn that one said's gonna happen occurs we're in a good position to buy assets at, you know, pennies of a dollar. It's funny you say that we're not feeling the pinch yet in central Pennsylvania. I haven't seen that stat about uh, new listings on the market, but I, I do believe you're correct. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out soon. Um, when I talk to business owners and investors who have been around the area for most of their career for decades, they'll say that, Oh yeah. Lancaster is about six months to 12 months behind all the the uh, national economic trends or whenever there is a depression or recession we're hit the least hard of almost anywhere in the country why do you think that is i mean the amish it's gotta be the amish right <laughs> no well, i think it's a combination i think you have a strong like for the, for the area if you look at the demographics and the employment opportunities of the area. I just think that there's a strong mixture of, you know, when you talk about types of jobs, industries, um, the backbone, you know, his, the historical legacy. There's a lot of things that go into like what makes, you know, the central PA area very attractive. Um, in Lancaster specifically, you know, I'm not, there's very nice areas of York and, and Dalton and Lebanon County. And I think they're all kind of like, they're kind of very similar, but the city, the county, and like it's there, you have, basically you have this ingrown demand, right, for land. And you have this ingrown demand for business from the Amish community, right? They kind of just originate, so they're not going anywhere. And then on top of that, you have, you know, a lot of the foundations of education, you know, there's FNM, there's, there's all these other places in Lancaster, and there's a lot of these companies like Armstrong and Argus and all these other bigger companies that are headquartered here. So when you have a downturn, I don't think you see the massive like, okay, we're going to lay off, you know, 5,000 employees like a San Francisco firm, or we're going to lay off, you know, all these people that you would see in all these other companies because, you know, if there is layoffs are more slowly structured and they're not necessarily cutting people to headquarters, they might be cutting people in the outer, you know, outer territories. Uh, but it just seems to me like there's like kind of this underlying foundation in the Lancaster area that's just very strong in the business sense. And it's always been there. Right. And I, I'm, I joke with the Amish is like kind of your opponent, but it, I think that's a big component. Like, talk about cash heavy. A lot of business. Oh, yeah. Tons of cash. <laughs> they buy how much, how much real estate have you uh, seen when it comes to Amish where they're just like, what well, financing? What's that? Like, we just have cash. 
I mean, we have a guy that um, one of our top buyers is Amish, mm-hmm. and he literally does not really care as long as it, it like cap rate is like an eight percent, like you know. So, and I I don't know. Sometimes there's some closings. Honestly, I don't know where he gets his money from, but it shows up. So like you know, they're they're um they're going out and they're creating wealth. I mean, the Bank of Birmingham in Lancaster right. here um, that was created by a bunch of Amish guys. You know, so they're they're kind of like chartering their own banks. They're very cash heavy, and that tourism, you know, the, the tourism they bring in and the foundation. I mean, it's just a it's a big industry that you kind of neglect to see a lot of times. That has so many other businesses dependent on the Amish in Lancaster County. One of the things that I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I mean, you can, but I don't think it's a necessary correlation to draw is the abundance of food that we grow in this area. It's, it's like this cornucopia of uh, non-irrigated farming in I, almost the world, potentially the world, but definitely the country. I know California produces and exports a lot of uh, produce, but they're irrigated. They're, I want to say water leveraged, whereas we get some of the most rain. So from an environmental standpoint, um, uh, we might not be the most exciting beach, you know, a uh, tourist trap for destinations of these land, like rich geographical features. We want to go and visit like Niagara Falls or some beach or, you know, Grand Canyon, something like that. But we have rain and we have good soil and it's really hard to be, you know, one of the phrases I like in real estate is you can't make a real estate market. Uh, you, you, you can't fake rich uh, land. So. Right. Right, right, and that's why, and that's why I really love investing in this area. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, when I talk about Lancaster, and they're like, "Oh, that's just a small, small town city somewhere." Um, we actually got—I don't know if you knew—you probably know this, Ross, but we ranked number one on Nerd Wallet for best small city in America. Mm-hmm. Um, saw that, which is awesome. And uh, when I tell them, I'm like, "Hey, you got all this cool stuff going on," but I'm like, "Think about this. Just think about this for a second. You have a historical demographic." large part of the population, I'd say probably 12-15% of the population, that is committed to farm, I mean, the Amish specifically, and then yet on the farmers, but they're committed to farming. So when you talk about scarcity of land, right, you cannot create new land. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can create it during the seas, but like in central Pennsylvania, you ain't going to create any more rich farmland, right? And you talk about demand for that land, right? You already have a building. It only increases as population yeah. increases. It, Exactly. So we, I mean, we're, we're, if you look at a map and you look at, you know, what, what people pay closer to Philly, like we're just that next frontier, right? Like we're, we're going to become Chester County. We're going to become these other areas. So when you look at prices now and you're like, oh, you know, it's a little more expensive, but then look, look to the East, right? Mm-hmm. You can see 60, $70,000 more for the same house, same piece of land. So that's going to come to this area. And I think, I think a lot of people overlook that. Um, and especially if they have all the preserved farmland, you have the Amish driving the cost of land up. Building land is going to be at a premium, and a large part of why the housing market went up in the last two years, and people don't realize this. They just think, oh, COVID, you know, whatever, no one bought a house for two years. No, it's because builders have not been building at a rate of replacement since 08. Right. And, and everyone, my favorite comparison to debunk is, oh, this is just like 08. It's not because in 08, there was a difference in supply and demand. Right now, we have we have scarcity. There's not enough supply to meet market demand. Oh wait, I felt like builders were pretty active, pretty busy, and there's also more regulation around financing and mortgages now than before. Where it was like, I promise you, Josh, I make three hundred thousand a year. 
you know, yeah, wait, wait, and that yeah. was an approval <laughs> for a mortgage. Like, okay, here you go. Like, yeah, like, oh, you have a job and you have a pulse. Okay, you, you know, zero down, you know, here you go. You get a, you know, 6% interest, who cares? Yeah. Um, well, and that's the thing. I mean, real estate and any kind of investment, you think about it, you know, if you're not in real estate, you're listening to this, you know, the prices of real estate are going to gravitate towards the cost to build, right? When the cost to build is cheaper than buying existing inventory, everyone's going to build, right? Why would you not build? I want right. to build my own house. I want to choose what I have. Exactly my, my own way that feels like exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why would I not do that? So if the gap between the two prices of, Hey, I can buy the same, you know, same square footage, similar house versus a new build. If that gap is wide, you're going to see pricing of the existing housing move towards the cost of build and the cost of build has not come down. I mean, you know, lumber price, all that stuff. So, if I were you, you know, I'm looking at an area to invest. I'm looking at what people are doing. I'm looking at what are developers, what's the cost for a developer to build a house in that marketplace. And I just know like, you know, if they're building a ton of units and it's a growing area. The cost of the existing inventory in that area is going to go towards the cost of build. And that's a good indicator of you, you know, what, how to invest, because if there's a lot of demand for new prop, new housing, you know, people are going to buy the cheaper existing inventory as well. That's great points. I totally agree. I think one one point you made mentioned earlier was I like to call it a swell effect. I'm sure there's a more technical term, but that's what I call it when you talk about like Philadelphia uh, de-urbanizing and moving out to the suburbs. You know whether that's they're tired of the prices, whether they're tired of crime, traffic. Uh, they don't have to go into an office so they can telecommute like we're doing over Zoom. You name the factors that they're now existing more than they did 10 years ago. So there is a suburbanization and a, hey, I can make this dollar go way further other parts of the country. So Lancaster County being a target for the Philadelphia and New York and New Jersey markets, it makes sense because we're within a three hour radius of you know the boss wash I-95. Um, so Lancaster prices I've seen when I, when I lived in that county. I was like, oh my gosh, now that I want to settle down, have my family, you know, get the buy the home that I'm going to raise my my child, if not children, and I need to take a serious look. And um, we've <laughs> I'll tell you, my uh partner and I looked at probably 30 homes in Lancaster County. We didn't agree on one of them. We looked at one home in Lebanon County and we were like, oh, are we done? <laughs> this search? And the reason being is because the same home was probably like 50% cheaper in the suburbs mm. of, of Lebanon than it would have been in Lancaster. And I'm okay with the 45 minute commute to get down to downtown Lancaster. You know, it's, it's, I went to Warwick high school in Lidditz, Lidditz median uh, income. Now I think it's like 108,000, which is crazy, which was not that way when I was growing up. Um, but it is now, so it's here to stay. Uh, so 501 traffic is the worst complaint I have. Um, but you know, I, I can afford to live here in Lebanon in, in a very, very comfortable dwelling and to do the same house and lit it's, I'm, I'm sure would have been like, oh yeah, <laughs> at yeah. least 60% more for the, the closing price. So I don't know. That's an interesting thing about Lebanon County that I'm finding is that there is some new commercial development for business. And the residential seems like it's lagging behind and there's a lot of farmland here too. So I, you know, Lebanon has one fifth the population of Lancaster and Lancaster population is, is growing quite a bit. 
It's also like a commuter town between Burks and Dolphin and Lancaster. Not much going on up north. Uh, you know, the Pine Grove area, not super business hub, but if you like to hunt, I'm sure you're going to love it up there. So Yeah, we actually just did a flip up in Jonestown. So okay, uh, a very successful flip for us. But yeah, like anywhere in the central PA region, I mean, if you're looking to invest, you know, uh, reach out. You know, I'm happy to talk to you about our options there. But, you know, I'm very heavily on central PA. I'm, I'm sold. You know, I obviously have born and raised here on like Ross. Uh, and just the progress and where everyone's going, it's, it's going to be great. So, uh, you know, when's the best time to buy? You 20 know, years ago. 20 years ago. When's the second best time to buy? Yeah. You know, yesterday. So, you know, you always got to buy. Basically, I always tell people, you know, when you're looking to invest, uh, look for the marketplace, look for the people who are doing it well, talk to them. What are they doing? What are they seeing in the marketplace? How do they buy? Um, and, you know, look for the young people too, because I always, you know, tell people that, you know, that even my business and where I've come in the last couple of years, I have learned so much more in the last couple of years being in business than I ever did in school. And I think as you get older, and I don't, I'm not taking that away from like, you know, older people being more successful, but, you know, there's a difference between someone, you know, owning a hundred units and being 55 and someone who's 25, right? Like mm-hmm. the acceleration of wealth and what they've just done in a shorter period of time matters a lot. So for me, I'm looking for what the young people are doing. If they're, if they're buying a ton of units, if they're going heavily with this, this is telling me that they're sensing opportunity. That's the people I want to be talking to versus, you know, the guy that's been doing it for 30 years that buys a couple of units a year, right? He's already been sold for a long time. It's just the person doing it now who's young, who's relevant, has the best ideas. They're usually going to accelerate faster. So... There, there is a story and a video that just came into mind when you bring up this point about acceleration and sort of youth, uh, if they can match someone in a different generation at like a portfolio level, it's like, how do they do that at that rate, at that speed? Um, Alex Ramosi, uh, popular in the digital marketing sales, mm-hmm. private equity space, had um, sort of made a video that was giving credence and thanks to people like Gary Vaynerchuk and Grant Cardone mm-hmm. for putting out content because he attributed a lot of his success by other people putting out content and expedited his learning curve um, so that he could execute and obtain massive wealth much, much faster. And he's like, I want everyone that's younger than me to also have that same opportunity. Uh, and he goes, those people probably would be where I'm at at my age, if they had someone like them to guide them at the time. Um, and another, another point about that is it was a reflection between a father and a son. And the father was, was saying basically it was a trope of like a, a middle-aged, like baby boomer father talking to like a, like a Gen Z, like teenager. And the idea was like, you're smarter than me. Like if you, if you look at intelligence as a rate of speed, like you are, you know, for every two steps forward you take, I take one step forward. Um, and when I'm older, I'll be taking a half a step forward. But the reality is I'm further along in the journey. You move faster and, you know, I can give you, I can only tell you my part of the journey. You have to still take yours. And that idea that, you know, there's a trade-off between um, intelligence and, and smart or or the ability to learn new things and grasp new concepts versus wisdom. It's like wisdom is great, but wisdom doesn't create blockchain technology. 
wisdom helps you navigate fortune. Like once you have it, how to keep it like pitfalls and all that. So like having both of those things in tandem, and I know my experience in being in a private equity firm where there were two members that were uh, in their older than 60, have had already had a career and then two members are in their twenties and thirties. That was a very interesting dynamic to sort of, to sort of hold. But um, to your, to your point, I always appreciate where I'm at today. Cause I feel like I'm kind of in the middle, <laughs> you know, I'm not mm-hmm. super young. I'm not super old. I've seen some things, haven't seen it all. Um, I hope I still am at a rate of two steps for somebody else's one, but you know, I've seen some pretty bright young kids and I learned from them too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important. I mean, you know, when you're younger, you want to get a, a, an older mentor, right? That's like a natural thing to do. Um, as I've gotten older, I've wanted to get younger partners, mm. right? Um, so I think there's a there's validity. I joke, um, we go to conferences and whatnot, and you make a presentation, and you're up there, and you, you're everyone can see your business, right? You're, you're kind of an open book. You're making a hot seat presentation, and I always say like, who else in this room has a younger, better looking partner? <laughs> and people sometimes think it's like you know your significant other, and I was like, no, 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 your business partner, right? And, you know, some people are like, you guys need to get one, right? If you're looking to do that or get somebody younger, better looking, running your team. Because the reality is like we we live in such a fast paced world. Uh, and Ross, I know you know this, like I come out of the digital world where like stuff I was doing six, seven years ago, like we don't do that anymore, right? Like there's stuff I was doing two years ago. I mean, there's stuff I do two weeks ago that I probably won't do, it now, right? So you have to learn so quick and rapidly. Um, so that's why I always like to like, you know, I'm always trying to cultivate younger members who are relevant and, t- you know, teach them the business processes. I think there's some timeless things that you can continue to teach and your processes and your KPIs and how you do things. But I'm also looking for that youthful energy and that youthful you know, innovation energy. Um, is what I like to term it. So I had, I had a conversation today, Josh, that's going to, it's a hundred percent related to that. You're going to laugh. I was uh, interviewing someone uh, as uh, they were looking for a fractional CMO and they go, all right, have you been a fractional CMO with uh, virtual reality or the metaverse before? I'm like, no, didn't that just come out? I was like, what? Like there are CMOs that have navigated metaverse apps already. I'm like, where the fuck are they? (laughs) You know, like that that's a new concept to me i'm like i've i've helped market apps but like that's not the metaverse you know <laughs> right right and i and that's funny because it's like yeah we're the 50 people in the whole united states right that would fit this well um <laughs> so you know i have a marketing client that does you know arvrs applications i know you i know you interviewed john on your last podcast and uh you know he doesn't even know probably five cm fractional cmos that work for these companies so uh, that's hilarious. But yeah, I mean, look, looking at the innovation, I always like to say, you know, as you get older, as you kind of build some sorts of processes, there's going to be things that you don't want to do necessarily anymore in your business. And you kind of learn that as a person, right? Like, what am I good at? You know, when you're in your early twenties, it's like, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Right. And you're going through that constant, like kind of figuring out who you are. And then by the time you get to be, you know, late twenties, thirties, whatever, our age, you're kind of like, all right, I'm good at these four things. What do I need to delegate to somebody else? What do I need to make sure that somebody else is carrying out? Because I just, and I know I'm going to fail myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I've kind of been in the last couple of years is just how do I build businesses that I can make sure that I'm fulfilling a team that's passionate about what they do, they do great service and they care about our customers, but also 
it allows me freedom to work on what I'm good at um, in either marketing or systems operations, whatever it is, and allows me to delegate and give a different you know responsibility to somebody else who cares much more passionately about that responsibility than I ever would. Right. So, um, so I think how do you important. find these partners? Like what, what are your different ways? Like, it, it just seems like to me, it's so much easier for me to find somebody that's already established because I can look online and it's, yep. it's almost like when you're looking at the number one, the podium, they have a bullseye on their back or a target on them. But when it comes to these up and comers, like talent scouting, I think is a real skill to cultivate. Yeah. So a couple principles I do, um, I think will, that will help you. Um, if you're in a company and you're hiring, I was always like hire two, keep one philosophy. I know that may sound like crazy to some people, like you're literally, you're firing 50% of the people you hire. Uh, and that's not the case. So when you're hiring younger individuals these days, what I find is that usually going in the job, if you hire two and you kind of gamify it, right? Like you gamify the position, you say, hey, listen, we want to hire, we brought two people on, we're going to train you at the same time, we're the same training, the same opportunities you're going to find a leader, right? One of the people, one of the people there is going to step up and be the natural forerunner and the leader. And one most likely is going to realize either they don't want to do the job or they're going to fire themselves or they're going to feel like, you know, they're not doing well because the other person is, you know, kind of leading that position. Sometimes you have both of them. They both end up being, you know, really good. But oftentimes I found over the years is that you're going to keep that one person. And because you kept that one person and you you started them in the training process of, you know, this job is competitive. Like this job requires you to think outside the box. This job requires you to perform. You now have an A player on your team that you can grow, right? So I think that's really important. That's how I kind of started with this. The second thing is like character over hard skills for me all day. Mm. Um, and for me, I think I can take, like, I've gotten good because, you know, we have processes and systems and things in place. I've gotten good in saying, hey, you're a great person. I love your heart. I love your passion. I trust you, right? So, like, don't ever partner with anyone unless they take a bullet for you. And I think, you know, you're a smart person. You can grow. You can learn how to do real estate. You can learn how to do marketing, right? Like, there's courses out there. There's things out there. You can buy masterminds, right? It's harder to buy a really quality person, mm. in my opinion. So you're just getting that quality person and you're giving them, you know, you're giving them that trial period, right? That training period, that trial period, like let them work underneath you before you make them part, right? Like make sure you want to work with this person first. See how they are as a partner. See how they are as a, you know, an employee and then come to them later and say like, I want you to be the owner of X in this company. or I want you to run this division. And because you're doing that, you know, you're getting part of this equity or you're getting X, Y, Z. Um, and that's how I just kind of run it. Um, I'm the more naturally propensity to partner. Some people are like solo entrepreneurs, but for me, partnership allows me to have operators in my business so that I can focus on the business and or do the things I want to do. And it gives me time freedom versus having to be in the business by myself. Mm -hmm. No, that's an interesting, succinct way to look at how to sort of cultivate a group of good people around you to help support uh, whatever endeavor. It's funny. I'm in a, I'm in a position now where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting the fractional journey. I'm about two months, I guess, legitimate, like with all paperwork done and having a bank account and EIN, I'm like a month and a half into it. Okay. And I'm getting a ton of 
opportunities where people want to partner with me to have an equity stake and start either start a brand new business or to help them be a growth partner and do a really heavy lifting. And I'm like, wow, um, if I were to say yes to all these, these types of opportunities, there's others that are, that are interesting that I'm talking to, but these startup really hard turnaround, you know, growth driven opportunities, like one, like the delay gratification would be so intense and the muscle strain would be so intense where I'm like, I don't know how I can justify that effort. Like I can help you find people that can help you. Um, and that would probably be the most honest answer. And two, I'm like, I think I don't know if I want to go through that kind of pain again. And that's just kind of being through like those battles before with seeing startups and working agency life. And, um, but at the end of the day, I would say the, the thing that I've found is I have been more, uh, gracious with the benefit of the doubt and being like, oh, this person's a great person. You know, their character's there, trust them fully. And then had my trust like damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and the times, like all the times where I've been right, I've been like, oh, thank the Lord. Like, this is amazing. But the times that I've been wrong, I'm kind of like, you know, I put an unfair expectation. So how do you, how do you um, handle that? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big man. I mean, I, I'm a man of faith, like to be honest, um, myself, uh, a believer. So for me, it's like, I think a shared understanding with your partners um, on that level. Not to say I wouldn't partner with anyone that doesn't believe. Um, but for us, it's like, it goes beyond, you know, what we do here on this earth is, you know, it's essentially like we're we're going through motions to to create value, right? In an earthly sense, to create time, freedom for wherever we are. But like at the end of the day, what really matters is we're doing what we're passionate about, what we're called to do. So uh, I always say like, hey, your job, like, what we're doing like this should be fun right like being an entrepreneur should be a lot of fun and so i want to make sure like when i when i partner with somebody i i kind of i straight up tell them like this is going to be the toughest thing you ever do like as far as like grinding but like i want you to wake up every day and say i'm happy with what i'm doing right mm-hmm. um i know you kind of went through this with your private equity firm and stuff and like going to be a father and then like seeing the hours you're putting in and being away from family and i feel like you, you know you were probably torn between the two and you had to make a decision um, I would never want to get to a point if I had a partner and I knew that they wanted to be a father and they're working all these hours, we would, we would have that conversation far beyond like when they were even pregnant, right? Like we would say like, Hey, what's going to happen uh, in a year when you want to become a father, right? Let's make sure we have people in place or teams in place. What is your, you know, what is your, what do you do to envision yourself? Right. And business plans change. Like, I think that's the thing with people in partnerships, like, your fundamentals don't have to change, like your shared understanding of what you want to do. But let's say we start a business tomorrow, Ross. And let's say we're like, hey, we want to make $5 million in two years. Right? Sure. And we get into it and we're grinding. And let's say we make a million dollars next year. And we realize, listen, we're working, you know, maybe we're working 20 hours a week and we're, you know, we're doing a million dollars gross and we love what we do. We can just say, let's just stop at a million. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be this, you know, continue. I think a lot of people, they get burned because they either go back to that original, you know, glimpse or, or their idea of what they want to be at and they get into it and they realize it's a lot more money. It's a lot more, it's a lot more harsh. It's a lot more gray than what it is. And they, they're unable to communicate effectively well, like how to make themselves, how to make themselves and their lives happy. A partnership, like you were saying earlier, when you invest into a company, 
you're pretty much investing in a founder, right? A partnership, you're investing into a person, right? Mm. Yeah, you own a business together, you own an idea together, but I am more interested in my partner succeeding personally, spiritually, financially, you know, personally, then I really care about the business, right? Like, yes, I want the business to make money. Yes, we make money. Yes, we do well. But if my partner is being fulfilled on all three of those levels, then I just know our business is going to flourish. So for me, it's important to make sure that I'm communicating that, you know, weekly with them in our, in our weekly meetings or, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like, hey, where are you at? Are you happy? Hey, what, what are we doing? Because things change, right? And I think that's really where you have to communicate with your partner. Um, and you're pretty much married. Like it's just like a marriage. No, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of good insight. I think shared values is important. I think, um, understanding the goal and making it a realistic, uh, Hey, this is a good, whether it's a goal to exit or whether it's a goal to, you know, put it on autopilot or cruise control, whatever that looks like, just being realistic. I think, Kind of what comes to mind for me is this. You know, I'm bring up Alex Ramosi again with his idea of the uh, his value equation, right? So the top line is always like blue sky, like you know how much um, profit we can get and how much gross revenue, and um, just like it's like the dream outcome times perceived of achievement um, is the top of this value equation, but the bottom is the time delay times effort and sacrifice. So it's like a math equation, right? What I always did in the very beginning when I was younger and, and, and had the whole world in front of me was like, all right, I want to be, you know, hundred million dollar net worth by 30 years old. And, um, I know I can do it because I'm going to work really hard and blah, 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 blah. So like top level was great. And when you're doing digital marketing, it's always like, we're going to get you these sales. It's going to be awesome. But what some people do and what I am now, so focused on is reducing the bottom half of the equation, which is the pain part, the negative part, which is like, I'm going to work really fast. I'm not, or or as a fractional CMO, guess what? I'm not going to be working 60 hours a week. I'm going to be giving you 20 hours a month and we're going to schedule it. The effort and sacrifice, which I knew, like I knew private equity was going to be this, this big deal and whatever. Um, it's understanding the value equation and, and how to provide as much value as possible. So I know that you're in the same mindset. So because of our experience, I believe we've made really good at reducing the negative part for people. Like with your 717 home buyers, it's like, you, you know, they don't have to worry. It's quick. You know, it's easy. There, there's no headache behind it and they make money. Right. So, I mean, I'm assuming that's your value prop in a nutshell. Yep. And, yep. and for my partnerships in the past, I've had, several, several, several ventures, many, many partners. Some have worked and been great. Some have have not been so great. I would say the core partnership with, with professional equity group that my most recent company, I am very appreciative for. And I would say overall, just a wonderful learning experience and great. I would say that, you know, where I was at in that, it's like, oh, my, uh, my time and my level of effort and sacrifice is probably not sufficient for what you guys need. So I'm like, at this point, I'm ready to, you know, take a step back in order. It also is funny to see like what people's idea of, of a business that they want to create, right? So what gets them mm-hmm. passionate? What gets them? I know that you're doing the real estate. So I want to ask you, and, and I know we would talk about this before a little bit, but when did, like, how did you make the decision to go from
this point in the Zoom, I asked Josh how he made the decision to go from his journey in digital marketing to entrepreneurship. I want to apologize for technical difficulties as this part of the interview has been cut off and now lost. However, I'm sure I'll have Josh back on the show. If you made it this far, kudos. Thank you for listening. And feel free to reach out to Josh. Just type in Josh Eberle, 717 Homebuyers is his website. Find him on LinkedIn. He's a great guy. I would love to hear from you. And as always, I'm here to bring the thunder to your business, your life, and your pursuit of property. Let's go. Share the show. Cheers. Thanks, guys.